yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than the birds? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? If then you're not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? Don't strive for what you should eat and what you should drink, and don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord of the word and prayer, and then we'll get into it. Lord God, we just come before you tonight, and we ask you to be with us as we dive into this very important text. We seem to be a society that is plagued with anxiety, and, uh, and Lord, you've told us all along how to overcome it. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we would just see what you have in this text, that we would rightly divide your word, God, that nothing would be added or taken away from it, Lord, that you would remove me as much as possible and that it would be your truth going forward, and that uh, you would just inscribe your word onto our hearts. We pray that every believer here will become more like Jesus Christ by hearing your word and applying your word, by doing your word. And we pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, by hearing your word, they will be saved. And so uh, we just pray all this to you. We pray that you would be glorified. I pray that, again, you'd be with me, Lord, um, and just you know remo- remove my frailties Um, that get in the way of me being able to uh, preach your word with your power. So, Lord, again, be in this whole thing, and and we ask you to be with us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name for your glory, God. Amen. Please have a seat. According to a 2015 article in the New York Times, nearly one out of every five Americans has an anxiety disorder. Not just anxiety, but an anxiety disorder. It's 20% of Americans. Anxiety is probably, me speaking as a counselor here, one of the most frequent reasons people have come to me for counseling. It does seem that, as Americans, we live in a very anxious culture. People tend to be worried about a a lot of different things, and no doubt, probably some of you here tonight are worried about various things, or maybe somebody listening online is worried about something. Some people are anxious over just about everything, right? Right? Obviously, some people will have it worse than others to such a point where they will become terrified and they'll become more or less ineffective recluses. Now, one thing that was brought to my attention by Heath Lambert, and he's the former president of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, is he brought to my attention that the Bible is all about our fears and anxieties. And one evidence of that is, ask yourself this, what is the most often repeated command in the Bible? Anybody know? Do not fear, fear not. Yep, same way, saying the same thing, do not fear or fear not. That is the most often repeated command in the Bible. And what that shows us is that God is concerned with whether or not we are afraid. It shows us that the Bible is going to overflow with helpful teachings about fear and anxiety. And our text this evening is one of those helpful teachings. The bottom line is this. If God commands us not to fear more than any other command, then it means in most cases we are doing something wrong when we live in fear and worry. Why else does he keep commanding this? Now, it sounds like I'm saying anxiety is a sin. And I'm going to tell you in most cases it actually is. Now, that might be hard to hear, right? That's hard for us to hear in this particular culture, right? For all of church history, most cultures would have no problem with this. But we specifically have been psychologized by our culture into thinking that people are victims of anxiety. And the reason that the culture thinks that is because they try to understand the world and humanity apart from God. They try to understand both those from, apart from the God who made us. 
But since God made both the world and humanity, any attempt to understand us and the world apart from God is going to fail. It's going to fall short. See, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that we cannot control, and that's why we worry. We worry because we cannot control this world. We get anxious. And at the end of the day, we get anxious because we wish we were in control. We wish that we could control every circumstance that happens to us. Now, let's translate that. That means we wish we were God. And because we are not God, we then worry. So yes, at its root, worry and anxiety is most often the result of this idolatrous thinking within us that mourns over the fact that we're not God. And at the exact same time, it refuses to trust the one who is God. That's the root of anxiety. We want to be God, meaning we want to be in control. And then we don't trust that he is in control, right? That's the root of this all. So Jesus seeks to set that wrong attitude right in our text. So the main point of the text is this. For the note takers, this is a huge sentence to sum this up. Christians should not worry. It's just kidding about it being a huge sentence. That's all this comes down to. Christians should not worry. Now, some people will undoubtedly be thinking, they'll be like, well, why not? There's a lot of things to be worried about in this world, a lot of things bigger than we are. So who are you to tell us that Christians should not worry? Well, first, let me say it's not me. Jesus is the one talking in our text, and he's going to command us three different times. And these are commands, three different commands to not worry. That should be enough for the Christian, right? But our Lord is then gracious enough to give us reasons with those commands. He's going to give us a lot of reasons this evening not to be overcome with anxiety, not to be overly anxious. So with the three commands, he's also with each of them going to give three reasons why we should not worry. And also three reasons why worrying ends up being foolish. And so it's my prayer that in this teaching from Jesus, we're going to see the cure for anxiety. So let's get into it. Christ means to tackle this problem in our text. Now, as I read this text, some of you might be thinking, hey, this sounds a lot like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And indeed, it is a parallel passage, but there are some significant differences. Here in Luke chapter 12, Jesus' teaching comes on the back of a parable that he just gave. He gave a parable where he was teaching about a foolish rich man who trusted too much in himself. This rich man invested everything in his earthly wealth, and he had everything set up to retire early and enjoy many years of eating, drinking, and being merry. That was his plan. So he built all these barns, had all this stuff stored up, and then he's like, self, I'm going to live it up. Well, in the parable, God then interrupts and calls the man a fool and says, you're not taking into account the fact you're going to die tonight. Okay, this is the day that you are going to die, right? Just as you were about to retire. So all that work was for nothing. And someone else is going to get to enjoy everything you worked for. Now, why did Jesus tell that parable? It's because if you go back even before that, somebody in the crowd wanted Jesus to force his brother to divide his inheritance with him. And so Jesus perceived the motive of the man was greediness. It was greediness for an abundance of possessions in this life right now. So then Jesus answered that person's request with this parable that ultimately shows us that we are not in control. The man in the parable thought he was in control, set everything up the way he wanted for his life, and then he dies, showing that he had no control over the day that he exits this world. Jesus's point is, no matter how hard you work towards something, you could die at any time. 150,000 people died today. Actually, no, it's 180,000 people. 150,000 people died today who never heard of Jesus. But about 180,000 people died today. Another 180,000 are going to die tomorrow. And so how do you know you're not going to be one of them, right? We have no real control over that. So reminding us that we are not in control could lead to anxiety and worry. So think about it. Lord, divide, make my brother divide the inheritance. Eh, let me tell you this parable about a rich fool. Well, once he shows that you're not in control... Chances are you're going to get anxious, and so then he gets into our teaching to tell us how to think about this so that we don't get anxious, right? And what this shows us is there's really two, maybe even three types of responses to the fact that we're not in control, okay? When, when you hear that and really come to understand that I'm not in control, 
One response is like the rich man in the parable. He blinds himself to the fact that we're not in control, and he lives his life as if we are in total control. The end result is he does not suffer too much anxiety because he's closed his eyes and his ears to the real world. He tunes out all the things that are bigger than him, and so he doesn't realize how small and insignificant he is in the grand scheme of things. He doesn't start to worry until the moment God says, you're going to die today. And then at that point, he realizes it's too late, and he's got the rest of eternity to mourn because he's clearly not a believer. Now, the second response to understanding we're not in control is to really uh, freak out and become scared. Like, wait a minute, I'm that small? I'm insignificant? I can't control the majority of my circumstances? Oh my gosh. And so then what happens is some people become afraid of their own shadow and they don't know how to navigate life because they're so distracted by the infinite amount of things that could go wrong today. And so their lives are lived in such a way where they are utterly distracted by fear and anxiety. And then, as I said, there's probably a third response. The third response is just to accept that we have no control and determine that we're going to go with the flow, right? Well, I can't control it anyway, so I'm going to go with the flow. And often that leads to irresponsible living on the part of the person who thinks that way because he's going to say, what's the point in trying? I don't have any control anyway. Put a thousand on red. And then all of a sudden he loses it, you know? Uh, so the thing is that that's another response is just to like make no plans at all. All three of these responses are unbiblical. All three are worldly. In fact, Jesus is going to make this very clear as we go along in the text. The right response is what he's going to teach us. The right response is to acknowledge that you're not in control but then to totally acknowledge and trust the fact that God is in control. So the right response is faith. It should lead to trust in God. The right response is to work and live your life responsibly, knowing that in the end, God is managing everything in this world. He's managing everything that takes place with perfect wisdom. Even the tough things that come in your life, it's not random. It is there on purpose. There's a purpose for everything. And so then keeping that in mind reminds us that when the bad things and the circumstances come our way, it's part of the plan of the infinitely wise God, and he promises it's going to work for good. So we just need to trust him. So with all that buildup, let's look at what our Lord Jesus has to say. In verse 22, Luke lets us know that this word comes from Christ. It says, then he said to his disciples. Now, Before we go any further, I know I'm stopping just after a clause there, but that lets us know this is a word for Christians. Who's he saying this to? He said this to his disciples. The world is not going to understand this. They're not going to agree with what Jesus said. They're going to think it's crazy. Remember, they think anxiety is something that happens to you and you're just its victim. But Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to Christians, and that means if you're a Christian, He's speaking to you. And since he is speaking to you, he fully expects you to listen and to change your way of thinking about this and to obey him. So in the rest of verse 22, he starts with the first command, not to be anxious. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about the body, what you will wear. Now notice that the first word is therefore. And I know it gets old, but just about every Sunday, I'm telling you, whenever you see the word therefore, ask yourself, what's the therefore, therefore, okay? And really, what it comes down to is the therefore is always asking you to look back at what was just said, what was just said before this. And I already cleared that up for us. He told the parable about the rich man who was foolish in response to the guy who was demanding that Jesus arbitrate a money dispute between him and his brother, okay? So apparently... Anxiety over the things of this life, it causes people to be greedy. And so Jesus taught against that greed, and then he says, therefore, and he's going to tie this to anxiety. See, people tend to think that if they could simply get more and more of what they want, then they'll never have to worry. Problem is, the world doesn't work that way. Think about America. We live in the richest country in the world, and yet we probably have the highest percentage per capita of worried people here than anywhere else in the world. And I remember years ago, I think it was 2017, I looked up mental illnesses uh, distributed globally, and they like used a color chart on the world map, and America was the brightest. So we got like less than 400 million people 
a very small percentage of the world's population, and yet we have the most mental health problems? I mean, what's up with that? We've got the stuff we want. We've got security beyond any other people in the world, and yet we seem to be the most anxious people in the world. So I think that proves what Jesus is saying is correct, right? Getting more stuff isn't going to solve the problem, right? So Jesus is commanding us, right? He's saying, do not worry, which, by the way, in the Greek, it's a command. It's in the imperative uh, mood. So he's telling us, do not be anxious. Worry, anxious, same word in the Greek. Now, some hearing this may be objecting to what Jesus said. You might be thinking, well, what are you talking about? How can you tell me not to worry about what I'm going to eat or wear? Because that's what Jesus is commanding here. And you're gonna, you might be thinking, we need food. We need clothes. Well, anticipating that, Jesus continues. So look at verse 23. He answers. He says, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, if you are worried about food and clothes, then what he's saying is you're thinking that's what life is all about. You might say that life is about more than that, right? Most people will try to say something that sounds deep, like life is about loving others and fulfilling your dreams. But watch what happens when most people who say that lose their job. Watch what happens when these people lose control of the circumstances of their life. Are they focused on loving others at that point? Are they focused on fulfilling their dreams? No, for most people, it quickly becomes a dog-eat-dog game of survival. And the reason that happens is because people have a false view of reality. They think that reality is merely about survival. I mean, that's the theory of evolution there, not what the Bible teaches. And so the question is, is reality really about survival? See, Jesus here is giving us the first reason why anxiety is foolish. The reason is life is much more than just what you wear and eat. There's more to life than that. If you're so worried about that, then you're seeing life as less than what it is. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jesus, prove it. Prove that life is more than striving to acquire food and clothing. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to provide us two examples from nature that prove that life is more than these things. He points out two life forms that are a lot dumber than we are. In fact, they are too dumb to plan for the future, and yet they seem to do just fine. How could life forms that are dumb survive so well? And that's what he's going to get at. It's because they're not the ones who are in control. Someone else controls this all. So with the first example, he points to one particular creature. Look at verse 24. He starts by saying, consider the ravens. Now, that's another command, right? Consider the ravens. He's commanding us to look at nature. Okay, he's saying, think about this. I really want you to put your thinking caps on. Okay, unlike animals, we have the ability to look intently at the world and understand things. That's why one of the Proverbs says you could look at the ant and learn a lot about being industrious, right? So Jesus is doing the same thing. Look at what God has made. Okay, you're going to learn a lot if you pay attention to what God has made. And so he says, consider the ravens. Well, what about them? He continues, verse 24. He says, they don't sow or reap. They don't have a storeroom or a barn, yet God feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than birds? So let me put this in today's vernacular. Birds don't have 401ks. Birds don't plant seeds. Birds don't gather harvests. They don't invent technology in order to produce food. They don't construct irrigation systems to bring water to themselves and to their crops. No, They simply fly around and grab some twigs and make a nest out of it. They then find worms as they're flying along in seeds. And they do this on a day-to-day basis, and they seem to do just fine. No thought in their mind, no planning to this. And if you think about it, how successful are they? Well, there's more birds than people, okay? For every human, scientists estimate there are between 40 to 60 birds. So Jesus' point is simple. If life was all about what we eat and wear, then why is a creature with nowhere near our intellectual capabilities and our innovating abilities, how is that creature able to thrive and survive? How? They survive just fine without worrying about these things. I, last time I checked, birds aren't like making appointments with psychologists, you know, to help them with their anxiety. Yet they're doing just fine. That proves then 
Life is not all about what we eat and what we wear. After all, there's about 400 billion birds in the world that never think about these things. Now, I don't want us to get this wrong. He's not saying that we should all become lazy bums and quit our jobs, okay? There's too many commands that tell us to work and be diligent, invest, and all that kind of stuff. He's simply telling us that the birds are taken care of. Why are they taken care of? Why are seemingly dumb creatures able to survive and thrive? Look back at verse 24. The answer is right there in the middle of it. Jesus says, quote, God feeds them. That is why there are 400 million birds alive right now who are unable to plan for the future. God feeds them. Without God, of course they would all die off. They don't plan. They don't build. They don't invent. They don't till the earth. If God's not managing this all, there would be no birds, okay? They survive because God cares for them. Now, what is Jesus's point? The end of verse 24 shows us. He asks this. He says, aren't you worth more than birds? See, if birds cannot do all that we can do, and yet they survive and thrive because God takes care of them, then how much more so are we in a better position? Look, we know that there's the insane belief of a lot of environmentalists out there that humans are a plague and animals were no better than them or actually were worse than them, right? But contrary to that insane worldview, Jesus right here says we are worth more than birds. We are, okay? We are worth more than birds. Now, the fallen world out there seems to denigrate humanity and they see us as less than we are, okay? But listen, the Bible makes it clear we are not merely an equal part of this world with every other creature. In Genesis, we were given dominion over this world. We are made in the image of God. We have a responsibility to steward this world. That is why we can do things that animals can't do. We're the only ones building skyscrapers and spaceships and airplanes and boats. and, And we're the only ones with schools and all that kind of stuff, right? It's because we alone are made in the image of God. Okay, so the idea is if God takes care of creatures that are not made in his image and don't have the same dignity as we do, then why in the world, that, why in the world would we doubt that he's going to take care of us? That is Jesus' first point here. He's then going to add to this a second reason why it's foolish to worry or be anxious. Look at verse 25. He asks this. He says, can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? I mean, think about that question. Can you make yourself live longer? The answer is no. And and worrying does not help you. Worrying actually hurts you. There's a lot of evidence out there on that. People who are overly anxious tend to have a lot of other health problems. It affects their sleep, their circulation system, all that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, the why and how anxiety hurts them so much, that's debated. But the fact is, anxiety hurts both the body and the mind. It does the opposite of what people hope it will do. See, people think by worrying about something, they're going to focus on their problems, and then they're going to fix it. But so often, the opposite happens. The problem, since they're worrying about it and thinking about it too much, starts to seem insurmountably big, right? Too large. And then the anxiety increases, and then the problem seems even bigger than it really is. And then the physical effects of that anxiety worsen as well. So rather than fixing the problem, the worrying about it actually only makes it worse. Rather than adding time to your life, it's already been proven that it starts to subtract time from your life. The worrying actually doesn't make you live longer, it makes you live less. Furthermore, the quality of life you're going to have is not good because you're too worried about life to enjoy the gifts that God has given you. And often, people don't realize that until it's too late and then you've lost the very thing you were anxious to save. Some people worry about something so much, and then they lose it and realize only after they've lost it that, man, I wasted all that time worrying about this. So worrying about food or clothes is not going to give you food or clothes. Worrying about anything won't actually solve the problem you have. It's not going to make you live longer. These are the facts of life. And so in response to that, Jesus asks us another question in verse 26. He says, if then you are not able to do even a little thing, why worry about the rest? Now, I love how he words this. We cannot make ourselves live longer. You might say, well, I'm healthy. I run every day and I I eat well. Listen, that's only going to make you probably live a couple months longer, right? I mean, the the research is not going to make you live decades longer. 
Now, your quality of life will be better. So yes, exercise, eat well, and all that kind of stuff. But it's not going to add 30, 40 years to your life, right? That, that, it doesn't do that, okay? Your life is what it is, okay? Your genetics are only going to take you so far. And so Jesus calls this impossible thing for us. We cannot make ourselves live longer and longer. So it's impossible for us, but he calls it a little thing. He's like, if you can't even do this little thing, it's like, what are you talking about, little thing? With all of our advanced medical knowledge, we cannot make ourselves live too much longer. And yet Jesus is saying that's a, a little thing. But think about who's saying this. Jesus could heal diseases with the word. He could raise dead people with the mere command. God in the Old Testament with the single word granted King Hezekiah 15 more years of life. So from Jesus' perspective, which is God's perspective because he's God in the flesh, from his perspective, adding time to our life is a tiny little thing. It's easy for God, okay? But we, with all of our might, we can't do it, no matter how hard we try. But for God, it's, it's a little thing. And what's Jesus' point? He's saying that worrying is foolish because it doesn't change our situation. It doesn't remove your circumstance. If you're going to die, worrying about it's not going to make you live, right? Worrying does not do anything to your circumstance, Okay? The only one who could change your circumstance is God, right? He's the only one, the very God that takes care of the birds. He's the only one that's good, that could help you with your situation. The Bible teaches us that God is all-powerful, that he's sovereign, that he rules everything. So you can't add time to your life, and you ultimately can't control whether or not you're going to have food or clothing. You could do things to help towards that. But think about it, right? You might say, I work hard, I invest, I have a bank. So did a lot of people in Kiev until about three months ago. And now they don't have clothes, they don't have food, and the only way they are getting stuff is by outsiders smuggling stuff in. And three or four years ago, big hurricane in Texas, that for five weeks people didn't have food or clothes or water, and it took people to help. So yeah, you could work all you want, and we're supposed to, but don't assume you have control over this circumstances outside of your control could happen in an instant that removes your predictability and comforts in life, right? Yeah, we could plant seeds, but the rain might not come. We can invest in a 401k, but the stock market could crash. Think of what happened in 1929. In the grand scheme of things, that's not that long ago, right? We might invest our whole lives, let's say, in kids' sports. I remember when I was a high school teacher, our quarterback at Oak Hill's this guy was probably going to go to the NFL one day. He had the height, the size, his, he had the precision. He had a full-ride scholarship to a D1 school in Colorado. And then in the second-to-last game of the season, he got clipped and it broke his knee. And guess what? The scholarship was pulled. His whole life, he'd been building up to that. And then, and then he lost it. We just don't know what's going to happen. Okay, so the point is, in the same way we can't control how long we live, we can't ultimately control the food or our clothing or our relationships or anything else because we can't control the whole world around us. There's too many things outside of our control, and worrying is not going to get you in control. It, it, it just won't. It won't change anything. So what Jesus is saying is instead of worrying, trust the one who does control it all. The call is to remember, look, the birds are taken care of, so don't worry so much. Now, Christ is going to quickly move to the second example in verse 27. He commands us to consider something else from the world. Okay, look what he says in verse 27. He says, consider how the wild flowers grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. Now, he used birds as an example for food. He's using flowers as an example for clothes. Solomon was the most glorious king in the entire history of Israel. When you read the Old Testament accounts of his palace, his clothes, his servants, and everything, it was breathtaking. In fact, when the Queen of Sheba came and visited to see for herself, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 5 says it took her breath away. And that's when she's looking at Solomon in his glory. Well, the Lord is telling us that a wild flower, a weed, in the field with all of its brilliant colors and its pleasant smells were actually adorned far greater. And if you look closely at them or put a microscope up to them, the brilliance of these things are beyond anything we could weave together, right? And so the thing is, flowers don't spin. They don't spin the thread. They don't weave garments. They just grow. 
and they look beautiful. And so Jesus' point here is the same as it was with the birds. In verse 28, he asks this. He says, if that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you, you of little faith? What a strong word, right? Who clothes the grass or the flowers? God. Who feeds the birds? God. What's worth more, humans or grass? Humans are. The flowers are here one day and they're burned the next. Humans, once we are born, we are eternal beings. We're always going to exist, okay? Now, we didn't always exist in the past. We come into existence when we're conceived, right, in the womb. But henceforth, you're going to exist forever, okay? A trillion years from now, you're going to be somewhere, right? This, this is never going to end, just to let you know. It's not that way with the grass. It's not that way with the birds, okay? So we will exist forever. And Jesus here is making a lesser to greater argument to call Vahomer in Hebrew. It was very popular among Jewish rabbis at that time. It's a lesser to greater. If this is true about birds and grass, then how much more true is it about you? A person made in the image of God, especially if you're a Christian, redeemed, new heart, regenerate, adopted into the household of God, right? So if God so perfectly takes care of these lesser things, like birds and grass, then we should expect him to take care of greater things like us, like humans, right? And you might think, but isn't that presumptuous? No, because he's telling us this. He's telling us to think this way. And when you don't think this way, he's telling you you have no faith. Okay, what does it come down to? Look at the last line. Look what he says to the one who worries. He says, you of great faith, you of little faith, you of little faith, fear is the absence of faith or trust. And if you were to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? Jesus is making it clear that the reason that people worry is because they don't have faith or they're a very little faith. So they either do not trust that God is in control or just as bad, they assume he is in control, but they act like he doesn't care about them, okay? And so now they're questioning his goodness, his character. They don't trust him to take care of them. And listen, faith isn't just belief. The word faith means trust, okay? So when he says, you have little faith, you have little trust. Do you trust God, right? Not trusting God is the thinking that exists behind the worrying. That is why we worry, because we don't trust him. And Jesus is going to take this to another level as we move on. For now, it suffices to say that Jesus in the first command, he's only given us one command so far not to be anxious, but he gave us multiple reasons, right? And so in the first command, he revealed two reasons why worrying is foolish. First, life is more than the things we worry about. Second, worrying does not change anything for the better. It doesn't solve anything, right? It only makes things worse. And so Jesus wants you to look at creation. He wants you to learn from it. He wants you to look and observe how God takes care of things that are worth less than we are, and if we could see he's trustworthy with those things, then we need to trust that he is trustworthy with us. Anxiety, usually, is our disobedience to do that very thing. Okay, fear and anxiety and worry is our declaration in that moment that we don't trust God. Now listen, you could read the Psalms. There's a lot of people who worry in the Psalms and they're expressing their worry. But how do each of those Psalms end with them resolving that and then trusting God with full faith? Like, Lord, hey, I'm trusting this to you. So it shows you how we work through that. We start with the point of worry. We then complain to God about what our circumstances are, but then we end it with full confidence that, you know what? He's got this. What we're not allowed to do is just hold on to that worry and say, well, I'm a victim. And no, that's not how the Bible tells us to deal with this, okay? So Jesus is going to make it clearer with the second command not to be anxious, that being anxious is not trusting God. He's going to show you who you're really thinking like when you're worrisome. I just love the details here. He, I mean, he, he makes it inescapable. So look at verse 29. That's where we're going to see the second command. He's going to tell us a second time not to be anxious. He says, don't strive for what you should eat or, and what you should drink, and don't be anxious, right? He's already said all this, but he's commanding it a second time. Now, before going on, I think it goes without saying that if the Lord of the universe gives us a command and we disobey it, then it's sin, right? Disobeying God is sin. He's commanded us twice. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Don't worry about these things of life. 
So the question is, what is the basis for Jesus' second command to not be anxious? The answer is kind of startling. Look at verse 30. You may have never thought of it this way. He says this in verse 30. He says, for, they, for the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things. Translation, when you are anxious about the things of life, you are thinking like an unbeliever. In the context there, the Gentiles were all unbelievers. They were pagans. Okay, so this is the third reason why worrying is foolish. You're thinking like someone that doesn't know God. Listen, when we're all bent out of shape and we live in terror as though the sky is falling and when we have no confidence that it's going to be okay, when Scripture ceases to comfort you because now you disbelieve what it says and what it promises, in that case, you are living and thinking like an atheist. Think about that. In an atheist universe, meaning if the atheists are right, which they're not, but if they were, then the universe is all one big random accident, right? There is no design behind it at all because there is no designer. There is no providence because there is no intelligent being guiding the universe and history. Everything in the atheist universe comes down to random chance. Everything. Our existence is a happen chance stroke of luck which means there is no meaning to life, there's no purpose to life, right? Therefore, no one's in control because it's all a big fluke. We're not in control, nothing's in control. Everything's random. Christian, listen, when you are so worried that you think everything's out of control, you're agreeing with the atheist. You are thinking like them. They too think that nothing is under control. And so when you're so worried that things are not going to be okay, again, You're agreeing with them, okay? They too think it's not gonna be okay because they don't think there's a God guiding us. They think there's no plan for our lives, that it's just a fluke. Well, if I get all worried over my circumstances, I'm agreeing with them. I'm acting like it's all a fluke. Or I'm just not trusting that God is in control because if I were in control, I wouldn't let this happen, right? We start to think that way. I would never do this to myself. We start questioning his wisdom right? When you are so anxious that someone could quote Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to you, where God promises he will work all things, not some things, all things for your good. And yet you hear that and you say, you know what? It doesn't help. It doesn't help. I don't want to hear this platitude. I don't see how this can be for my good. Look, when that's in our heart, we are agreeing with the atheist. We're agreeing, we're acting like the Bible is not the word of God, that it's just a a book filled with wishful thinking. But then we'll raise our hands and sing and all that stuff and then go back to our daily activity and act like there's no God. And that's not how it's supposed to be. You see, to not trust God is either A, to be like the atheists, or B, to be like the pagans, the Gentiles of that time, who had no idea, they had no idea whether or not their little gods that don't exist, but what they believed about their gods, they didn't know if they were going to bless them or curse them. Their gods were not good. Zeus, all those guys, they were not good. They were capricious. Okay? And so when things don't go your way and, and you're acting like God's being unfair to you, kind of acting like what the pagans thought about their gods, right? You're saying that your God is capricious. Why? All because you didn't get what you wanted? Or all because you don't want the discomfort that might be in your life at that moment? Listen, that is idolatry of self. That idolatry of self is what lies behind the majority of our anxiety. And so Jesus is rebuking this combination of atheistic and pagan thought. He reminds us of what we should already know about God. Remember, he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. He's talking to the people who he saves. He's reminding us, look, God's good. Those other things, that's what the Gentiles think. Not you. Not you. Just like God takes care of the birds and the flowers, he takes care of us. So don't think like the unbelievers. Now, in the second part of verse 30, concerning the food and clothes again, Jesus says this. He says, your father knows that you need them. Let that sink in. Whatever your circumstance is, your father knows what you need. So do you really think the all-knowing and all-powerful God forgot that you need certain things to live? He just fell asleep and forgot? No, he's the one who made it all. Do you think he's going to be better to birds and grass than to you? Jesus is telling you, remember, the Father knows you need these things. In any tough circumstance, 
even the ones that have nothing to do with food or clothes, God knows what you need. In fact, God is the one who allowed the circumstance to happen for a reason. He is using it to make you more like Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you simply need to trust him and let him take care of you. The solution is not to worry about these things. Again, we saw it. It doesn't help. The solution is is not to order your life around this world and its concerns. So then the question is, how do you cure anxiety? In a sense, as if it's a medical thing that needs to be cured. Now, like, how do you deal with it in your heart, the heart problem? Well, like any kind of change, the Bible tells you there's three simultaneous things you have to do. And this is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. You have to put off the sinful thinking. Okay, so the not trusting God, put that off. At the exact same time, put the righteous opposite on, trusting God, right? And then in between those two, you renew your mind with Scripture. You renew your mind with Scripture. You read it and read it and see everything that you need to read in it to convince you that God is in control, that He's good, and that whatever is happening in your life, he's got this. He's in control of that, okay? Then you will be far more prepared for the tough circumstances. See, that's the chief difference between the Christian who's at peace during the storms of life and the Christian who falls apart. Often, the one who falls apart is bewildered at how the one who's at peace is able to be at peace. But it's because the one who's at peace has greater faith. Okay, they have greater confidence and trust in God. The one who falls apart does not. And so did not Jesus say that worrying means we're of little faith? So the question is, what does faith look like? What does trust look like? Well, it's displayed through our actions. It's not just a state of mind. It's our actions as well. So rather than chase after everything we're worried about in this life, Jesus is going to tell us to do the opposite in verse 31. In verse 31, he gives another command. Here's what he tells you. You want to worry less about your life? Look at verse 31. He says, but, but is a contrast. Okay, rather than worrying, here's what he says, but seek his kingdom and all these things will be provided for you. In other words, since the father knows that you need all these things, you don't worry about them. He'll give you what you need when you need it. Instead, focus your efforts and your energy on his kingdom. God is going to handle the rest. If you're so focused on the things of God like we're supposed to be, then you're not going to have time to worry about the trivial things of life. They're going to be much lower on your priority scale, right? That's part of the cure. Rather than worry, get busy for God and see what happens to your anxiety. You'd be like, I'm too busy to be worried. I'm doing too many things for God to really worry about these other things. So yeah, you do have to have a job. A lot of Verses in the Bible command that if you don't work, you don't eat. You have a responsibility to your family and so forth. That's all a command. But don't make your job your life. Okay? Some people identify themselves by their job, by their career. No, work is a means to pay your bills and to bless others. That's why we work, so that we can pay our bills and bless others. But what we truly live for is the kingdom of God. What we truly live for is the purpose of God and the Great Commission, And that is carried out in the work in part of the local church. And so what that means is if you want to worry less, then don't go into like your little corner and just worry all day. Start serving in your church. Find things to get involved. Make yourself busy with the things of God and you will see that he will provide what you need for you. And then you could keep your eyes set on him. That is part of the cure. Almost nobody does that in our society. You've heard it, the 80-20 rule, 20% of the people do 80% of the work in the church. That's why the other 80% are worried all the time, right? So the thing is, instead of having the kingdom as an afterthought, have the kingdom as the thought, and then watch, anxiety will be the afterthought. Now, Jesus is going to carry this idea to completion with the final command not to worry. And and with it, what he's going to do is he's going to get to the heart of anxiety. Not only is anxiety not trusting God, but anxiety also comes when a person's entire hope is wrapped up in this world rather than the world to come. That's really where it comes from. It's always wrapped up in this world. So Jesus corrects that with the third command not to be afraid. Look at verse 20, or not to be anxious. Look at verse 32. He says, don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Now, you have to love the tenderness of the Lord here. Not only does he command us not to be afraid, fear not, right? But he also calls us little flock. Little flock, that's tender. 
See, God understands that we are flesh. He understands that we're not in control. He understands that the circumstances of life are infinitely bigger than we are, okay, and that we don't have the power to overcome them. So he's reminding you that you're his flock. Listen, think of sheep, because that's what a flock is, right? It's made up of sheep. Sheep can't survive on their own. There's a reason the Bible compares us to sheep all the time. They have no means to fight off predators. They have no ability to take cover when storms come. They are entirely dependent on their shepherds. There was this famous news story in the 90s where some shepherds fell asleep on the job or they went into town, and it was tens of thousands of sheep. One sheep wandered off, and then the others followed. The first one walked off a cliff and died, and then, by, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one. By the shepherds got back, there were thousands of dead sheep. Okay, so again, we're like the sheep. We need a shepherd, and God is our shepherd. And Jesus, as the God-man, is the shepherd, so God and Christ are the good shepherd. They care for the sheep because, as Jesus says in John 10, they love the sheep. And so in the same way that a loving shepherd makes sure that his sheep are fed, sheltered, and protected, God's going to do the same thing for us. It might not be the way we want sometimes, right? Sometimes God is going to feed us differently than how we want to be fed. Sometimes he's going to shelter us differently than how we want to be sheltered. Sometimes God protects us from enemies in a way that we wouldn't choose for ourselves. We'd prefer it to be a different way. Sometimes God protects us, feeds us, and shelters us by taking away our comforts. Sometimes it's by allowing our enemies to amp up their attacks and make it harder for us. Sometimes it's by taking away something very dear to us to remind us that this world is not our home. See, in these moments, God breaks us from the illusion that this world is permanent. This one is not. This one's passing away. But we live like this is the only one we got. That's an illusion. So sometimes he turns up the heat as a favor to us to break us from this illusion, to to get our minds set on what's true. This world is under the curse. This world is overrun by sin and death. Why would we want to inherit this? We want to control things so that we could keep things exactly as we want them in this crummy world. And whenever we do that, what we're doing is we've taken our eyes off of God's promises and we're trying to trade away something that's infinite for something that's here today and gone tomorrow. Okay, and I want you to think about this. God loves us too much to allow us to make that trade. So he turns up the heat. He feeds us the food that, that forces us to trust him more, right? He shelters us with the shelter that makes us trust him. He protects us with the protection of trusting him. In other words, the way he grows us in faith is by putting us through the very things we're worried about. That is how he increases your faith. I'm sure everybody's experienced this. Have you ever prayed for patience before? What is the very next thing that happens? People come into your life that test your patience in a way far more annoying than they did the day before. Okay? You asked for it. How do you get more patient? Dealing with people who test your patience. Right? How do you grow in faith? By dealing and passing through the things that you fear and are worried about. When a Christian understands this, a Christian's not going to think the sky's falling. Instead, the Christian again gets shaken from the illusion of this life. And they start to crave again the world to come, the world that God promised us. See, what happens is when we get worried, we forgot about our reward. We forgot about the promise, and so our faith diminishes. Comfort has blinded us. And so God sometimes takes away that comfort to restore the vision that we were supposed to have all along. When God does this, he is reminding us tenderly of what Jesus just said. We are his flock. We're his flock. Look at the end of verse 32. He says, your father delights to give you the kingdom. I mean, I love that. The father doesn't grudgingly give you the kingdom. All right. No, it says he delights to. Think of something that makes you extremely happy. Something that you give to somebody, it just warms your heart to do that. Well, you're finite. God's infinite. So when he delights to give us something, Take that good feeling you're thinking and multiply it by infinity. That's what it feels like to God, the best we could imagine it, for him to give us the kingdom. We who are weak, 
We who are frail, we who have sinned against him, we who so often refuse to trust him after he comes through for us again and again and again, and then next time we don't trust him, he still delights to give us the kingdom. He's stoked about it. It brings him joy to give it to us. Jesus wants you to remember that. But we only remember it when our eyes are set on the kingdom that is going to come on that day. So we need that biblical perspective. Listen, we're going to be alive forever, as I said earlier, okay? What are you going to be, what are you going to think? And and you have to try to use your imagination. What are you going to be thinking about your current difficulty right now? What are you going to be thinking about that one billion years from now? Because you are going to be alive one billion years from now in a perfect new heavens, new earth, right? And let's say you've only got 30 years left on this earth. So compare that 30 years with a billion years of perfection. Do you think after a billion years of perfection, you're still going to be like, just, man, that 30 years is horrible? No, you're not even going to think about it probably, right? So you are going to be alive thinking about this a billion years from now. But what you're going to be thinking is the opposite of what you're thinking now. So the thing is, think about that. What you're going through now is going to be nothing to you a trillion years from now. And I know I just made it bigger. And a zillion years, that's not a real number. But the point is, it's going to just go on and on and on. This is going to be nothing to you then. God knows that. You don't know it because you're trapped right here. But he already sees a trillion years from now the joy you're going to be in. He's not going to let you trade that for this. And if you could see with the eyes that you're going to have then, you wouldn't trade it either. The point is he delights to give you the kingdom, right? And so if he has to turn up the heat so that you hate this world a little more and want that one, then hey, He's doing us a big favor is all I'm saying. So in light of this, the cure for anxiety is trusting in the goodness of God. It's reminding yourself, again, he wants to give you the kingdom, okay? That then reminds you that when bad things happen, it's not because he's not in control, but instead it's because he loves you too much to let you take your eyes off that kingdom that he delights to give you. That then allows you to accept his instruction with thanksgiving and be at peace in the midst of a gigantic storm. Now, Jesus isn't the only one who teaches this. You know, Paul says essentially the same thing in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He says, don't worry about anything. Same command, right? Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Our hearts and minds need to be guarded in Christ Jesus. And then we have that peace, knowing that one day God's going to make everything right. So the point is, in in light of that, if you live in a way that's far far more focused on the perfect age to come and far less focused on this present evil age, you're most likely and most often not going to be overcome by anxiety. The anxious Christian tends, and I know this from counseling so many people, okay? The anxious Christian is 100% invested in this world and the way that they want things to happen in this world. The more faithful Christian instead is invested in the kingdom of God. They are seeking that first. This makes sense then out of what Christ is going to finish with. Look at verses 33 and 34. He writes this, which this, what he says here makes a lot of Americans uncomfortable. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also will be also. So again, you read that and you're asking, well, does Christ expect every person to sell everything they have? Well, it doesn't say that. He doesn't say sell all your possessions. He just says sell your possessions. And again, there's principles in the Bible that tell you you sell what you're comfortable with selling, right? So what Jesus is saying here, it's an example of overstatement to make his point. But don't use that as an excuse to not be generous, okay? You simply have to look at the story of Zacchaeus a few chapters later in Luke chapter 19. He was a greedy tax collector. But when salvation came to him through Christ, he sold half of his possessions to give to the poor. Not out of some attempt of works, but out of thanksgiving and joy over the fact that God saved him. Salvation leads to a changed life. The generosity of God received in our heart leads to our own generosity towards others. Okay, this is the the good works produced by faith. And so this rich, greedy tax collector wasn't greedy anymore. He's like, I don't need all this stuff. He sold half of it, not all of it, half of it, right? To give to the poor who did need it. 
And Jesus praised him for it. He said, now you know salvation's come to this person's house. Not because of the work, but because of the change of heart. So again, it's not about how much you give. It's about whether or not your actions show that your heart is no longer invested in this world, but instead it's invested in the world to come. And you can tell. Now, if you're going to be greedy with it, well, he didn't say how much. You already got the wrong heart. If you're thinking about the world to come, you're going to hold with much looser fingers to the stuff you have here. Okay? If you're clinging like Scrooge McDuck, then there is a problem. Okay? There's a big problem. If you're greedy to hang on to the stuff here, it's going to be obvious in your lack of generosity. And you're going to be the one who starts to worry when God turns up the heat to remind you that this world is not your home. But if you already realize that, then you're not going to be greedy with the stuff here. You're going to be generous towards others for the sake of the kingdom. And in so doing, Jesus says you're going to make money bags that won't grow old, that will be full of inexhaustible treasure, meaning that treasure never, ever runs out. And you will never have to worry about losing it. For God is going to reward you with eternal treasure when the kingdom of God comes to earth in its fullness. So at the end of the day, Jesus's point is this. The one who worries is the one whose heart is stuck to this cursed world. The one whose heart is fixated on the age to come is the one who has far fewer worries. And when they do get worried, they deal with it like you see in the Psalms. They issue their complaint to God, and then they're confident afterwards. Like, all right, I got that off my chest. I know you got this, God. And that's how we're supposed to deal with it, okay? Now, earlier, I mentioned that the Bible is a book all about our fears and anxieties. And so because of that, you're going to find more verses on this. If you want more on anxiety, I would say do a detailed study on 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Amazing stuff there. We've only looked at one teaching, okay? But this one teaching is sufficient, Okay? If you want to be rid of your anxiety, especially if, if you have anxiety that rules you, then realize what it is. Call it by the right name. Stop thinking about it the way the world thinks about it. Okay? Understand that it is a lack of faith. It's not trusting in God's sovereignty. Okay? Not a lack of faith that, oh, I don't believe God's going to answer my prayer. No, meaning that he's good, and it doesn't matter that this is happening to you. You trust him. That's the kind of faith that I'm talking about. Okay? But the problem is, when we don't trust, we're assuming that since we're not in control, nobody's in control. And that is blasphemous. That is thinking like an atheist. That's thinking like a pagan. It's to think that God is not good. It's to think that your life is your circumstances when Jesus said your life is more than your circumstances. It's more than your food and clothes, right? And so we're going to live based on the way we think. So a person thinks, so he is. People need to understand that your thoughts direct what you do. What you do directs everything else in your life. So if you're thinking wrong about this, it's gonna, you're going to live wrong about this. You're going to be anxious all the time. So think the right way. If you want to be rid of anxiety, start thinking rightly. Your life is not your circumstances, but your life is life eternal. It will far outlast your circumstances. Worrying doesn't help you. Right? It's not going to solve your problem. Those are the things you need to think. And just because you're not in control doesn't mean no one is. Remember, the one who you want to be in control is actually in control. God is in control. And what about God? He's the good shepherd, and you're his sheep. Those are the things you have to be thinking about all the time. And he's going to take care of you, right? Because he has absolute sovereignty over everything. He is good to you. He delights to give you the kingdom. That is why he allows your plans to get messed up, because he is too nice to you. It would be an act of cruelty for him to let your plans always go as you plan, because you are short-sighted. I am short-sighted, right? It's because he loves us that he lets our plans get messed up. He loves you too much to allow you to be overly invested in this world. He plans to give you so much more, and so he wants you focused on that. So brothers and sisters, believing this and trusting this are the keys to overcoming anxiety. This right thinking then must lead to right living. In this case, right living is living in a way that's seeking first the kingdom. Don't greedily hold on to your possessions. That means you're not seeking first the kingdom. You're holding on to this world. Okay? Instead, Jesus says, you want some of that anxiety to go? Be loose with it all. Be generous with what you think is yours. Don't, also, he's saying, seek first the kingdom. Don't selfishly ignore the needs of your church. Involve yourself in an every member ministry. If you're a Christian, you've been given a gift or gifts by the Holy Spirit, the expectations that you serve in your local church. 
There are no bench warmers in the kingdom of God. So you want to be less anxious? Start serving, okay? Live in a way that shows that this world is not your home, but instead you're merely passing through and you're working for something else that lasts forever. Your citizenship is in a heavenly, heavenly kingdom. And so if you busy yourself on the things of that kingdom, you're going to have a lot less time to fuss and worry about the things of this dying world. So that is the cure. It takes time. It takes, you know, practicing the putting off, the putting on, the renewing the mind. It takes effort on your part. But trust in God, and he will take care of you. Think of it this way. He's already taken care of your biggest problem, right? Your biggest problem is not that, hey, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills, or I have health issues. Your biggest problem is you're guilty of sin. That's your biggest problem. And God is holy and righteous. How does a holy, righteous judge pardon people guilty of sin? That is the conundrum. That technically seems impossible. Yet he was able to solve that. How could God satisfy his infinite wrath against you when you're not infinite? He solved that by becoming a man. Okay, to take our punishment in our place, because as the God-man, he could absorb an infinite punishment on that cross. When that sky went dark for those three hours, it's representative of the fact that the Father was judging the Son with the equivalent judgment that all of us would have gotten hell. It was invisible to us, but the sky didn't turn dark because God was sad. He was dumping his wrath on Christ for us. And somehow God was able to contain what's infinite in that three hours because of who Jesus is. And then Jesus died after every last sin was paid. And then he rose on the third day. And everyone who believes in him is forgiven of all of our sins because he paid our debt and we get the credit of his righteousness. If God can solve that problem, which is infinite, then how dare we think he can't take care of the little things in our life, which are tiny, right? Jesus calls adding time to our life a little thing, okay? Him saving us of our sins is a big thing. If he could solve the greater he could solve the lesser. So what I would say to you, Christian, is when you're tempted to worry, remind yourself of how much bigger your salvation is than your current problem. And that should restore your confidence that God will get you through this as well. And if there's any unbeliever here, I just shared the gospel with you. How does God save sinners? Through the work of Jesus, you need to turn away from your sin and believe on Jesus with all your heart and you'll be saved, right? It's that simple. So if you have any questions about that, come and talk to me and I'll gladly walk you through it. With that, we're going to pray, and then we shall be dismissed. Lord God.